So I have, that's uh, really good. Um, so I have never taken a message and divided it into two and made it two parts. I, I always thought I had done that, but I, I evidently have never done that before. So tonight is the uh, uh, lesson part one. Um, and uh, I'm going to teach tonight from the title, Court is in Session. Court is in Session. And um, I'm going to come from the book of Micah uh, and chapter 6. And it's a very popular passage. You know, you've heard it many times. Uh, but um, it's very rich. And I, I truly believe there's something, there's always something to be learned from the Word of God. Um, but there's a lot in this, and so, you know, it, it really speaks to, I think the bottom line is, is it speaks to the fact that we can never forget what God has done for us overall. And in Micah 6, as you will see, um, it actually, this gets laid out just like a court case, uh, and um, and it's God basically going to Israel and um, reminding them of all the good things he had done for them. And uh, I won't give away the rest. You can read it if you want. But uh, So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Micah 6. We're going to read from the first eight verses, one through eight, if you'd stand out of respect for the word. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. And I'm... It says, listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and the hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. Verse 3, O my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. For I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed and how Balaam, son of Baar, blessed you instead? And remember your journey from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. What can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God most high with offerings of yearling calves? This is Israel's response. Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? And God says, no, O people. The Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. So tonight, we're going to just focus on the first part of this passage. We're going to, uh, the first five verses of God speaking to Israel and voicing his complaints. And so if you would pray with me, we're going to get into it. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you, God, for this church and these people, God, and I ask tonight that they would be blessed by the word, God, and that they would learn 
go deeper with you, Jesus. I thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church says, amen. You may be seated. If there's anything I've learned over the years, sometimes parenting can be very frustrating. It can be frustrating when our children don't respond the way we hoped that they would. Think about it. How many times do parents try to set their children up for what they believe will be the child's best interest, only to have the child choose an entirely different path? For example, you pay money for them to take music lessons or consistently take them to every soccer practice or send them to special camps to fine-tune their skills, hoping that it will help them be a better person. But they grow bored with the violin lessons. I probably would too. Or become frustrated with their lack of soccer skills or resist attending camp. Maybe you want them to pursue engineering in college only to find that they've chosen philosophy instead. Maybe as your children grow older, you even hope that they may date particular people knowing that this young man or this young woman displays excellent character and credentials. And yet you find that they have no interest in your choice, but bring home someone instead that has less than stellar track record in your estimation. Parenting can be full of frustrations. You're always thinking, can't you see that I am trying to help you? Those with older kids. I am trying to do what is best for you. But of course, parents can be wrong. Sometimes parents put unrealistic expectations on their kids or live vicariously through their children's athletic or educational lives. But for just a moment, imagine that you are the perfect parent. The perfect parent. Every opportunity you provided for your child, you knew with 100% certainty that it would result in their benefit. That they would flourish and that they would thrive. How frustrating then would it be to work so hard to provide these opportunities that were perfectly tailored for the good of your children, only to have them roll their eyes, and our kids have never rolled our, their eyes at us, and ignore the opportunity. It happens. And what we find is a similar situation to this in our passage from Micah, where we hear the Lord present his case against Israel about how he has labored to provide every good opportunity for his children, only to have them ignore him and forget him. Israel has not been faithful to God up to this point in Micah. The Assyrian revolt against them, uh, the Assyrians have come and revolted against them. The first verse in, in Micah says that they were the times of the king of King Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. And Jotham was, he was a good king, the Bible says, but he forgot to tear down all the high places. 
he forgot to tear down all those places where they would go and worship other gods. Anytime you leave a, a, a remnant there, it, it's, it's a temptation. When you don't tear the whole thing down, God wanted them all torn down. Jotham didn't do that. Ahaz, he was not a very good king. And what he did was you had Assyria up here, a big empire that was growing. You had Israel and you had Judah. And what Ahaz, the king of Judah, did was he said, you know what, Assyria, we want to have this little alliance, so go ahead and go after Israel. It's fine. You can have them. Take them. We won't come up against you and help defend Israel at all. And that's exactly what Assyria did. Hezekiah came in. He was a very good uh, king. But again, um, he had his own issues all through his reign. So Assyria comes in, and they revolt against Israel. And Judah, um, they, they, they back off. They don't defend it. And their people are still going out to some of these high places. They're still not totally locked in with God. And when the terror of Assyria comes right to the border of Judah, what does uh, Judah do? They go running right back to the house of the Lord, and they start offering sacrifices. But this time around, God does not react to them as they expected. Rather than stopping the Assyrians, God sends a prophet, Micah, to call the nation to repentance. And so you have the first five chapters of, of Micah basically laying out this whole troubled relationship between God and his people. And chapter 6 opens with God as a prosecutor and judge standing before the court. God calls the mountains and the hills in verse 1 and 2 to be his witnesses as he pleads with Israel. And what follows, what we'll see in this uh, court case here, is a three-part exchange. And this is on your worksheet. First, God pleads his case. That's what we're going to cover tonight. Number two, then the people, the Israelites, make the Hebrews, they make, those people make their rebuttal. And finally, the prophet of the Lord settles the matter. It's like a big, huge legal proceeding take place. Bless you. So Micah 6, 1 through 2, we'll start right at the beginning of it. It says, listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and the hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. So he summons Israel to the court to hear the accusations and to prepare their defense against the charges that follow. And God is calling his sinful people onto the witness stand and calling the mountains to serve as a jury in this case. Why the mountains? One commentator wrote, it could be that, not on, that now only inanimate objects are left to listen to God's word at this point. The people of Israel have grown so hard of hearing that the Lord must now turn to the mountains to find a listening ear. What is God's indictment? We'll find it all through the book of Micah. God is consistently exposing Israel's sin. 
on your worksheets. In chapter 1, God called out Israel for her idolatry. In chapter 2, it was her greed and exploitation of the poor. And in chapter 3, it was the perversion of justice by the powerful at the expense of the most vulnerable in society. So verses 3 through 5, this begins God's case, if you will, against Israel. He says, oh, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me, for I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed and how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead? And remember your journey from Acacia Grove to Gilgal when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. He asked the rhetorical question in verse 3 on your worksheet, what have I done to you? Clearly, this is a rhetorical question because we know that God is not at fault here. But he's like a parent whose child has done some terrible thing. And the parent says, where did I go wrong? Where did I go wrong? What have I asked of you that was too extravagant? What load have I put on you that was too difficult to carry? And he invites them to testify against him. But before he yields to the floor to them, he answers his own questions. He hasn't burdened Israel at all. Quite the contrary, he's lightened their load. God makes the same case in Isaiah 65, verse 2 and 5. This is a pattern that just goes through the Old Testament with Israel. They, 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 they come to God, and then they slowly drift away, and then they repent, and they come back, and it's a back and forth and back and forth. Isaiah 65, 2 through 5 says, All day long I opened my arms to a rebellious people, but they followed their own evil paths and their own crooked schemes. All day long they insult me to my face by worshiping idols in their sacred gardens. They burn incense on pagan altars at night. They go out among the graves, worshiping the dead. They eat the flesh of pigs and make stews with other forbidden foods. Yet they say to each other, don't come too close or you will defile me. I am holier than you. These people are a stench in my nostrils, an acrid smell that never goes away. You never want God to say that about you. It's not good. So God presents his case, and we just had read it. God presents four historical examples to back up his claim. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I provided leaders during that time of salvation in the persons of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And when you were opposed on your journey to the promised land by Balak, king of Moab, I turned his own prophet, Balaam, son of Baor, against him, defeating your enemy. And I gave you the land of Canaan from top to bottom. You settled into the land of promise and then assimilated into the pagan culture of that land 
and you forgot my righteous acts. God has presented his case, and he sums it up by saying, you don't remember me and my work of salvation. It can sometimes, there are times in our lives that things can go so bad and we get so concentrated on what's going on right in front of us that we forget what God has done for us time and time and time and time and time and time again. He's always been faithful. He's always been good. And we can get caught in that current crisis and forget about what he's done. We kind of get to this place where we got to take care of it, right? We get all carnal. We got to take care of this. And we forget how many times we turned it over to God and God came through. This is exactly what God is telling Israel. He's saying, I've done all this stuff for you all the way back to when you were in bondage in Egypt and you have just forgotten completely about it and just gone to do your own thing. So let me break down this case on your worksheet. Point number one, God rescued them. That was the first thing he said. I rescued you. God rescued them. Micah 6 and 4 says, For I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. God starts recounting the redemptive history of the people of Israel. They had been in Egypt for 400 years. God then miraculously delivers his people from their bondage, and he brings them through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, and there constitutes them as a nation, giving them his law. Egypt was a place of bondage. It was the land of their oppression. Egypt was a type and shadow of the bondage of sin. And God said, I delivered you. This is the ultimate evidence of God's love on your worksheet. It is the Old Testament type of the New Testament deliverance from sin's bondage. When we grow distance distant from God, he could ask us the same question. What have I done to you? I brought you out of the bondage of sin. I delivered you from your captivity. And now you say I'm asking too much of you. Have you forgotten the taskmaster's whip? For the Israelites, this was the truth. They were never supposed to forget the taskmaster's whip. They were supposed to pass it on from one generation to the next. Deuteronomy 6 and 21 tells us that. It says, and you must tell them, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his strong hand. What he is saying is, on your worksheet, I brought you out of that mess. What are you doing walking right back into it again? I remember when I was at the bank, I would get people that would come in. I'm sure you remember this, too. People would come in, and they would sit at my desk, and they'd say, well, 
I've had four credit cards, and I ran them all up. And now I owe 50,000, 60,000 in credit card debt. I need help. Can you help me out? And I know sometimes we would look at them and go, you got $10 in your savings account. <laughs> this is going to be a tough one. But there were many that we could help out in whatever plan we would set up. And so we would put them on this plan, and we'd see them in the bank, and we'd say, hey, how's it going with your plan? It's great. And they're paying it down, paying it down. And then one day they walk in, and they say, hey, guess what? I paid it all off. I'd say, good for you. Then six months later, they'd come in. Hey, um, kind of ran it all back up again. Right? You got out of that mess, and then you went right back to it again. It's all so common. I think the reason I, I truly believe this. The reason is, many times, if we're not connected to God, if we're not connected in his word, if we know his promises, we know his statutes, we know his word, the enemy knows that. He's been at this a long time. Now, I'm not giving him any power here. I'm just telling you, he's been at this a long time. He knows your trigger points. He knows how to tempt you. I know plenty of alcoholics that were sober and ended up going with friends and just happened to be walking past a bar. They never dawned on them to ever walk into it. And for whatever reason, ping, and they walk right into it and they fall. They would have never guessed before going out that that would have ever happened. But the enemy knows how to deceive you and he knows how to trick you. And he knows how to take you back. Or uh, let me back up. He knows how to set up the circumstances. You make the decision. He doesn't make the decision for you. You make the decision. But he sets the circumstances up to draw you back into that. <clears throat> it's kind of like going on a 10-day fast. And say you're fasting sugar, sweets. Anybody done that before? Oh, we got one. And say your nemesis is frosting on a cake. That's your nemesis. That's the thing that always gets you. And you have a birthday party on the 10th day of your fast. All these kids come over. You got a big birthday cake with all this frosting on it. And they totally eat the whole thing. And you take the plate when they're done. And there are just little piles of frosting around the edge of that plate. And you walk into the kitchen. And you set it on the counter. You don't go to the sink and wash it off right away. I go back to tearing down the high places, right? You just set it on the counter. And how many of you, be honest, you can repent after this. 
How many of you take the plate and push it to the back of the counter? You don't leave it right on the edge where somebody else can come along. You push it to the back of the counter, because that's yours. And lo and behold, do we have any finger swipers here with frosting? Everybody's laughing, but nobody's raising their hand. <laughs> there we go. There's an honest one. Now, I'm not saying the devil did it. I'm just saying that there are temptations out there. And <clears throat> that happens to be mine. Um, There are a lot of things out there that God has delivered us from, right? Everybody's got their own story, but you can never forget that because it's so easy to walk right back into that mess again, and that's exactly what Israel did. Tear down your high places, get rid of the frosting, just love God. End of message. How about that? <laughs> What was Israel to remember? They were to remember that they were slaves under the sentence of death who took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, Passover, and were delivered by the miraculous grace of God who defeated their enemy and brought them into a covenant relationship with him. What is he asking us to remember? That we were once slaves of sin, under the sentence of death, who took shelter under the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And he miraculously delivered us by grace and brought us into covenant relationship. It doesn't change. It's the same today as it was back then. Number two, God provided on your worksheets leadership. The second part of verse 4. It says, I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. The Israelites needed godly leadership to bring them out of Egypt and into the promised land. And God raised up Moses along with his brother and sister to lead them during their journey through the wilderness. This is how much he cared about them. He gave them good leadership. Sheep without a shepherd are lost. Big amen on that. And God provided the shepherd. Philippians and 1 Timothy tell us that God, on your worksheet, robed himself in flesh and came to earth, and he was the ultimate great shepherd that leads us. Our shepherd lives within us. He leads us, he loves us, and he blesses us. Amen? Amen. amen. Point number three. God protected them on your worksheet. Micah 6 and 5 says, Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed and how Balaam, son of Baor, blessed you instead? In Numbers 22 through 24, the Moabite king Balak hired the prophet Balaam to curse Israel, but God intervened. A greedy prophet who was willing to bargain his gifts for worldly profit tried to curse Israel, but God put a blessing in his mouth, and instead of a curse, got blessed. 
God now calls that to remembrance as evidence of his divine providence and protection. He took care of them even when they didn't know where their trouble was coming from at all. <clears throat> the Reverend John G. Patton, a missionary in the New Hebrides Islands, Hebrides Islands, tells a thrilling story involving the protective care of God. Hostile natives surrounded his mission headquarters one night, intent on burning the Pattons out and killing them. John Patton and his wife prayed all during that terror-filled night that God would deliver them. And when daylight came, they were amazed to see the attackers unaccountably leave. And they thanked God for delivering them. A year later, the chief of the tribe was converted to Christ. And Mr. Patton, remembering what had happened, asked the chief what had kept him and his men from burning down the house and killing them. And the chief replied in surprise, who were all those men you had there with you? The missionary answered, there were no men there, just my wife and I. The chief argued that they had seen many men standing guard, hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords in their hands. They seemed to circle the mission station so that the natives were afraid to attack. It was only then that Mr. Patton realized that God had sent his angels to protect them. The chief agreed that there was no other explanation. Could it be that God had sent a legion of angels to protect his servants whose lives were being endangered? And I've got to wonder how many times how many times has God intervened in our lives surrounded us with angels, moved cars out of the way, kept people that would want to harm us at bay somewhere. How many times? We'll, we'll, we won't know until we get to the other side. But I think if God's, in his grace, decides to play the movie of our life in those instances, I think we will be shocked at how God protects us and keeps us. I know many have stories. I've heard stories and testimonies over the 20 years I've been here of people that have suddenly, you know, been protected from things and, and, and other people have told them, well, you had, I've had it happen to myself. God is good. God is so good. Amen. The Bible tells us that we are, on your worksheet, covered under the protection of God in which nothing can separate us from his love. Deuteronomy 31 and 6 says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Psalm 46 and 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. 2 Thessalonians 3 and 3 says, but the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Our God loves us so much. 
I just can't say that enough. He loves us so much. Point number four. God guided them into the land. The last part of verse five says, And remember your journey from Acacia Grove to Gilgal when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about faithfulness. Acacia Grove in uh, otherwise known as Shittim, was on the east side of the Jordan River. This was before they stepped into the Promised Land. Gilgal was the first city where the Hebrews settled after they got into the Promised Land. And Acacia Grove and Gilgal were separated by, on your worksheet, the Jordan River. The Lord separated those waters and guided them into their promised land. Crossing the Jordan was a turning point on their way to freedom. On your worksheet, the waters of the Jordan represent freedom from oppression, breakthrough, and deliverance. a place of repentance and new life and God is the one that guides us and leads us to those waters but we have to choose to cross it anytime the Hebrew children went into battle God went before them and as long as they were faithful to him he fought their battles and he brought great victories to them and God hasn't changed today we just need to trust him Right? Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. The NLT says, trust in his will. Sometimes God leads us to places that we don't always understand, but we have to allow his will to guide us on your worksheet. There is no check that God's will writes that his power cannot cash. That's got a little fire in it, so I'm going to say it again. There is no check that God's will writes that his power cannot cash. Our God is mighty. Our God is powerful. Our God is a waymaker. Our God is a promise keeper. He's a miracle worker. He's a healer. He's a deliverer. He is faithful and he is true. We are victorious because he is victorious. Amen? Amen. God has stated his case here to the Israelites. The prosecuting attorney in this case has said all he's going to say, and now he rests. Rest his case. And this is where I'm going to stop tonight because next week we're going to hear the defense of Israel and then the final words from God. But let me close with this thought Micah was pleading with Israel to remember what God had done for her to inspire them to obedience. The people of Israel were treating God as a burden, as though he was opposed to them. And God is asking, what exactly is it that I have done that's so burdensome? How have my righteous acts of saving you been wearying you? And of course, when you think about it, you realize that's right. God isn't against me. He's always been for me. 
I don't know if it was Pastor that said this in the last two weeks. I, I think it was. But sometimes life just happens. Right? It just happens. But we can't forget what God has done for us in our past. Because it's those situations when life happens that tends to throw us, gets us all crazy sometimes. Big bill comes in the mail. Car doesn't start. And we just, but God is faithful. I can testify to that. God is faithful. He has always been faithful. We live in a world right now that's very uncertain. There's all kinds of things happening out there. And many people have turned to fear. Fear is driving them. But the Lord didn't give us a spirit of fear, right? Right? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of sound mind. God's op opening argument to Israel is his opening argument to us in our turbulent times right now. And God wants us to remember how much he loves us. He rescued us from sin and bondage. His four points to Israel. He rescued us from sin and bondage. He put godly men and women in our life to lead us. He is always there to protect us, and he's always there to guide us. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, for this time, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your protection. We thank you for your guidance. We thank you, God, that you have reached down in some of those dark pits and pulled us out of there. And God, help us to always remember those instances, those times when you have been faithful and good to us, God, so that when we face something that is very uncertain, God, we can just reach back and we can go, God took care of it there. God took care of it there. God took care of it there. So God, I'm just asking, God, keep those blessings in our memory because we know you are good and you are faithful and we love you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. And the church says, Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.